Let's do it. La 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 la. Me 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 me. You 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 you. Pre-podcast ablutions complete. <laughs> Flatulence. <laughs> Beautiful, like GCSE French all over again. Flatulence. Ah, mais oui, les flatulences. <laughs> Le lapin, c'est la pantalon. Le lapin de flatulence. <laughs> oh, mon dieu. <laughs> Le flash of long cheveux. <laughs> My favourite pub. <laughs> this is the most conversation I've ever had in French. <laughs> That's very exciting speaking in another language and understanding what the other person's saying. <laughs> it is. I'm not entirely sure that flatulence is le flatulence in French. <laughs> well, it's what I'm going to say slowly and loudly <laughs> and in a condescending manner at the chemist. <laughs> Je suis flatulente. Have you Una any Rennies? <laughs> Sorry, Rennies. <laughs> Je mangeais too many legs de frog. Le onion soup. Allez through me. <laughs> Et out le autre side. <laughs> we tend to do this, don't we? We tend to, in a roundabout way, introduce the topic of the week. <laughs> how how is that related to revenge? Oh no, sorry. I thought this was still <laughs> health week. <laughs> My bad. <laughs> oh shit! Have you researched health? <laughs> no, no. <laughs> Oh no, okay, so you were segueing from health into revenge. I genuinely I did get confused because we recorded health on Monday and it's now Thursday, so we don't usually do two episodes in a week and I've got slightly confused about which one we're doing. No, I've got the right one in front of me. All my notes are right. Okay, good. <laughs> it's. Re- I was about to say, if you went from flatulence to revenge, it's a hilarious <laughs> story. <laughs> Tom, feed me a chorizo and put me in front of an ex-girlfriend and we... <laughs> You would never guess what Sar Peter did. <laughs> to the sweet queen. <laughs> Hello and welcome to what we call Tom. Uh, that was genius. Uh, yes, uh, I, I threw that at you unfairly. There, Sorry, you? caught you off guard yeah. with a difficult question. The little history podcast in which Tom, the slightly surprised man in New Zealand over there, and Sam here in the UK discuss history topics on a theme each week. We decide a topic a week in advance. But everything else is a surprise. Right, yes, the topic this week is revenge. Not health, it's revenge. Not flatulence. Not flatulence. Revenge. <laughs> We're so childish, <laughs> aren't we? It's childishness interspersed with highbrow historical knowledge, isn't it? That's what this podcast is all about. It is. It's very polar. The North Pole of knowledge and the South Pole of flatulence. <laughs> we hover somewhere in the temperate zone. <laughs> the windy noughties. <laughs> yeah. How have you found this week, Tom, for revenge? Very good. In fact, very, very interesting. It's not a particularly rude topic that I'm going to be discussing. Oh, good. Neither's mine. No, it's not going to be rude. It's not going to be silly. But it's very interesting, I think. Very, very interesting. I surprised myself when I was researching this. I may just give you a bit of a clue. I mean, I started with... The Count of Monte Cristo, because it's a classic, the classic literary revenge story. Mm. And I thought if I went down that route, I would encounter lots of, if you like this, you would like, um, you know, like you get on iTunes or Spotify. Yeah. But then I started reading the backstory to The Count of Monte Cristo and found it fascinating. So that is what I'm going to discuss today. I've, I've laid my cards on the table. Very, very good. Uh, well, I've done a story which... I discovered whilst researching something else for this podcast a few weeks ago and I've wanted to talk about for a, for a little while and so I'm managing to do it today. So, uh, yes, I am doing my second revenge-filled Ukrainian of this podcast. Excellent. Excellent. Yeah. I have an honourable mention that I would like to get out quite quickly. <laughs> okay. And there are a lot of them, aren't they, Sam? Because revenge, wow. Wow. Uh, there are some good revenge stories. Who'd have thought? Who'd not? have thought that history would be full of angry people doing horrible things to each other in retribution? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And then Jesus came oh. along, you know, with all his forgiveness. That made it a whole lot worse. Boring. <laughs> be more Germanic about Absolutely, it. Absolutely, yes. Come on. 
honor killings and all that sort of stuff. Anyway, here's a cracker. Go on. Now, this was one I encountered when I was researching. This only happened 15 years ago. Oh, wow. But it's okay. so brutal, it could easily have come out of a history book. So I'll be very brief about it. In 2004, an Indian man called Aku Yadav was being tried for rape in Nagpur in India. And he was accused of raping around 200 women over the course of about a decade. And even there have been murders associated with this guy. He basically sounds like he was a gang leader and was abusing a lot of lower caste I know this story, yeah. Females in slums. It's not an entirely uncommon story in India. (laughs) No, no, absolutely. There are a lot of themes here that are very Indian. And he was very much in the pockets of the local police. Anyway, the accusers of this chap didn't feel like the police were taking their accusations seriously. I know. Difficult to believe, what? isn't it? They were corrupt Indian officials not taking their job seriously. A lazy Indian and showing policeman. No, no integrity. <laughs> I know. What the fuck? <laughs> to all of our Indian listeners, um, you're like, your police aren't exclusively lazy, but they are particularly good at being lazy and corrupt. I know. You, you and I have both been to India, and I met some fantastic, wonderful people who are incredibly kind and generous, but there <laughs> yes. are, there's a lot of corruption. Yes. The vast majority <laughs> of people, fantastic, kind, wonderful, very hospitable, and then you've got the Indian police, <laughs> government <laughs> officials. I had a funny experience at a train station, which I think may have been, it may have been in Delhi, it may have been in a northern town in the base of the Himalayas. Anyone who's been to India knows that Indian people don't queue. You just huddle around, for example, a ticket desk at a train station and just elbow your way forward. At this train station, the police were determined that people would queue. And so they had very, very old-fashioned sticks. Something you'd imagine London Bobbies would have had 200 years ago. Yeah, they call them laffies. Yes, I think you're right, yeah. And every time someone broke queue, they got smacked (laughs) <laughs> the police officer with one of these sticks. I remember what they're called because they're really un- they're really ironically named because you will not be laughing once the police hit you with them, which they will. <laughs> yeah, I imagine. But yet these guys kept going back for more. So these guys <laughs> would get hit, these young lads. They would go to the back of the queue, they would wait there, and then like a goldfish, they'd forget, and they would push back to the front. The police officer would smack them around the legs, and <laughs> they would walk back to the back. Two minutes later, they'd go back to the front. <laughs> and I remember sitting in the queue watching people get hit four or five times before they registered <laughs> what was going on. They just thought the police were hitting them for fun. <laughs> yeah, they just thought it was... Which is not entirely unlikely. <laughs> no, they just thought it was a trial they had to go to to get a ticket, I suppose. <laughs> anyway, this chap was being tried for this one rape, although he'd been accused of hundreds of others. 200 women stormed the court, believing that it wasn't being, their, their accusations weren't being taken seriously, hacked Yadav to death, cut off his penis with a kitchen knife, stabbed him 70 times, stoned him, and rubbed chilli in his face. I think the last bit is somewhat I unnecessary. I think the chilli may have started the affair. <laughs> oh, right, OK, you were doing it in reverse order. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It wasn't like a sort of... From the front to the back, that's where you were at. You know the rapist didn't like that. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's probably the first time Craig David's been invoked in an Indian court rape case. <laughs> oh dear. And he rapes someone on Monday, he rapes someone on Tuesday, and then Wednesday oh, and Thursday no. and Friday. <laughs> in the days that followed the event, um, every woman in the local slum district claimed to have been involved in the murder. And because so many people claimed to be involved in the murder, it just com- made the police inquiry a farce. Not that it would have <laughs> no, been, been quite a farce in the first place, place yes. <laughs> anyway. Uh, nobody quite does mob justice like the Indians, do they? They're, they're very good at mob justice. Mm. Anyway, I, I thought that was a very, very brutal yes. story from <laughs> India that I encountered. Wonderful. <laughs> You're doing the Count of Monte Cristo, aren't you? Which probably isn't quite as violent. No, it's not. But it's, I think it's very, very interesting. The inspiration for the story I found very, very, very interesting. And it's also a very cool period of history. It's the Napoleonic Wars. Oh, which I brilliant. Yes, very good. I was listening to an excellent podcast earlier on the week about Napoleon's retreat from Moscow, which was probably not Napoleon's best decision to invade Russia. No. (laughs) Well, that features in mine as well. (laughs) Does it really? It does. You're a bit Napoleonic. Excellent. Well, I'm not doing Napoleonic, but I'm doing invading Russia in winter. Yes. And why that's usually a very bad idea. Oh, God, who (laughs) who else has made a mistake? I know the Nazis did, and I knew the French did. Who else has made a mistake of doing that? Oh, well, largely the Nazis and the French. They're the two best known. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, generally, heading north in winter is a, a very bad idea. Especially when you know the Rushkies are just going to run away and burn everything <laughs> in their path. <laughs> yes. 
Classic Russia. Fuck off, you are not gonna have anything to eat. And then it will become minus 30. Minus 30 it was on, on certain days when the French were trying to retreat out of Russia. Minus 30. I can well believe it. I've been in Moscow in January and wow. it hit minus 28, 29. Wow. Yeah. Chilly. Very chilly. Yeah. Well, one of the other things I heard in this podcast that was just, I just thought was brutal is when the French were retreating from Moscow, having realised, for those who don't know, that the Russians had a scorched earth policy and just retreated, 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 scorched the earth, burnt everything so that the French basically were just going to run out. Their supply lines were going to get too stretched and winter was going to come and they were going to be stuffed by the weather. Anyway, so Napoleon took his forces back along the same route that he'd come along, which meant walking through a massive battle site where hundreds of thousands of people had been killed only a month or so earlier. Imagine that. Jesus. Imagine having to walk through that. Far out. Good for morale. Yeah, absolutely. Rotting horse corpses. Humans blown apart. Fuck me. I was going to say, the the horse corpses are the least of your problems. It's a delicacy to the French. (laughs) Yeah, it's food. (laughs) For a hungry army. Yeah. As we've encountered in a previous podcast, the siege of Paris. The poor French. (laughs) Which was... Uh, late 1800s, I think. Middle 1800s, I can't remember. The Russians love that kind of thing, partly because it plays into the Russian sensibility. We already starving. We already have no home. This is the happiest Russian can be when truly miserable. <laughs> we simply spread Russian hospitality to new visitors in the French army <laughs> by giving them traditional Russian welcome of no food <laughs> or shelter. <laughs> can you cope with being as miserable as us? <laughs> we are used to this, are you? <laughs> this for us is summer vacation <laughs> so folks just in case any of our listeners were thinking of invading Russia probability is against you also Afghanistan yes. don't bother no not got a very high success rate <laughs> there are some places in the world it's just better to visit with a tourist visa yeah if you're going to invade anywhere go for France itself <laughs> yes, <laughs> <laughs> nobody's ever failed <laughs> First ones to go. They even conquer themselves first. Yeah, don't yes. they? <laughs> yeah they've got plenty of practice. <laughs> That's at the same time losing and winning wars largely against themselves. <laughs> right. Anyway, we've bashed the Russians, we've bashed the French. Indians as well, we've been fairly derogatory. Absolutely, yes. <laughs> Who's next on the list for a classic British slagging? <laughs> Very good. Right. To be honest, Tom, I think you should just go for it. You're in your flow. Fuck the flipping of something this week. Let's... Take chance out of it and just let you go first. Perfect. I've already operated. I have pretty much started. Anyway, Alexander Dumas, Count of Monte Cristo, is a famous story of epic revenge. Many of our listeners will have heard of it. Many of them will have read it. Many of them will have watched it. It's been turned into countless films and um, television series as well. It was written in 1844 by the French author Alexandre Dumas. And I won't talk about the plot of the story specifically. You can go away and read it if you're really interested. It's supposed to be... I haven't actually read it. I've I've watched it on a number of occasions. Yes, likewise. It does genuinely sound like a fascinating book to read. And it's a very, very, very popular book. Which versions have you watched, Sam? I can't actually remember. It's been a very long time since I saw it. But I watched it as a kid. I th- my wife and I watched it one holiday in France. We watched the French series with Gérard de Gepardieu Ooh. in the lead role. And I must say, his giant conch has incredible presence in every scene. <laughs> it does. It's like it? an extra actor, his nose. <laughs> it's like he's fighting with a second sword. He's <laughs> got a huge conch, if you've never seen the famous French actor Gérard Gepardieu. They say, Tom, that he is very wise. Gérard Depardieu. Do you know why he is very wise, Tom? I do not know, René. Because he knows everything. Ah ha 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 ha! Oui, oui. Le French joke. Très bon. <laughs> oui, oui, oui. Merci beaucoup. Quelle est la date de ton anniversaire? In terms of French jokes, Sam, <clears throat> why are French roads always lined by trees? Uh, so the invaders can march in the shade? <laughs> so the Germans Ooh, can march in the shade? Thank you very much. Thank you very much. <laughs> I think I know that joke because I think you've made that joke on this podcast before. <laughs> I probably have. Didn't make the edit, though. Probably not. Uh, <laughs> like, like so many of your jokes. <laughs> the other one, which, again, I probably did do in a, in a previous episode, is, is how many gears does a French tank have? <laughs> um, one forward, four reverse. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Circa 1945, those jokes. (laughs) Um, Still going strong. 
Let me start by introducing you to a chap called Pierre Picot, the shoemaker of Nimes. So Dumas claimed that Picot was the inspiration for the Count of Monte Cristo, and Dumas discovered the story of this man when looking through a police archive of criminal cases. For anyone who is familiar with the book, Count of Monte Cristo, this is pretty much the exact same plot. So if you haven't read the book, you're not familiar with the book, this is pretty much how the book goes. If you have read the book, come back in 15 minutes. <laughs> Make yourself a cup of tea. Call your parents. They're worried about this you. This is one of our come other, back other episodes. <laughs> in 1807, Pico was engaged to a wealthy woman. Three of her friends were jealous and so falsely accused Pico of being an English spy. And... In terms of the date, this is smack bang in the middle of the Napoleonic Wars, where the English and the French really weren't on very good terms. And it's only two years after the Battle of Trafalgar, which is a famous battle in English history for any of those people listening who aren't British. Picot was sentenced to seven years in prison in Fenestrelli Fortress in the Italian Alps, and he didn't even know why he was in prison for the first two years. In Dumas' story... The prison is actually the Chateau d'If off the coast of Marseille. Have you been to Marseille? No, I, you know, I've actually I've been to very little France. Very nice. Really just the northern coast. Have you? Oh, I love France. Beautiful country to visit. My wife and I have been to Marseille. This was a long time ago. We went for a long weekend to Marseille. It's not a particularly big town and there's not masses to do, but it's certainly nice for a weekend. Wow, you're selling oh, it. Oh, no, it's really nice. It's really, really nice, but it, you, you wouldn't go there for a week. It's not like Barcelona. Um, this Chateau d'If was a prison fortress on an island just off the coast of Marseille so you can actually go and visit it and that's where ah. the prison is in the Count of Monte Cristo whilst in prison Pico went full on Shawshank and burrowed a hole through to his neighbouring cell where an Italian priest was writing dreadful reviews about the Airbnb that he'd booked <laughs> <laughs> traditional hostel situated high in the Italian Alps with views over the historical town of Turin my ass. Fully air-conditioned with a spa bath, my backside. I mean, it probably was air-conditioned in that it was conditioned by air not having any glass in the windows. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If he was lucky enough to have a hole in the wall, it wasn't just a dark, damp <laughs> cell. Also, I love that he he didn't burrow to escape. He burrowed to visit the priest next door. <laughs> yeah, he burrowed for friendship. Might have been a thinner <laughs> wall. I don't know. Or maybe he was... <laughs> a thinner wall maybe. is irrelevant when you're just burrowing into another cell. He may... That logic doesn't stack up. This is the practice run. Yeah, yeah, just practicing my technique. Maybe he got through and he he finally got through the wall and he could feel that he'd there was air on the other side and he was like, yes, I've broken three. He poked his nose through. I was like, oh, fuck. It's a neighbour's cell. <laughs> Assuming it's Gerard Depardieu, his nose was probably poking through about three minutes before the rest of them got through the hole. <laughs> yeah, he probably made the hole with his nose. <laughs> so this chap was called Father Torrey. And they became very good friends. And incidentally, Father Tory translates into Irish as Father Ted. <laughs> I was going to say. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, hello there, Father. <laughs> no, Dougal, that wall's very thin. That wall is outside. Very far away. <laughs> <laughs> it's Turin's largest prison camp, I understand. And assorted other Father Ted quotes. <laughs> Would you like a cup of tea there now, Father? Would you like a tale of revenge? <laughs> <laughs> very good. Father Torrey died in his Airbnb shortly after he told Pico of some treasure he'd buried in Milan. And he basically said to Pico, have the treasure. So what happens in 1814 is Pico is released from prison after the fall of Napoleon in the French First Empire. So in 1812, that's when Napoleon foolishly invaded Russia and had a very miserable time retreating from Moscow. And that was kind of the turning point in the French First Empire. Um, a few years later, he was defeated in a number of battles and actually exiled to the island of Elba, but not for long. Anyway, we won't go into that. Different story. Different story. So 1814, Pico is released, and then he goes full Liam Neeson from Taken. He goes full Liam Neeson to get his revenge. <laughs> he has one of his plotters just murdered straight away. I am a man who is a specific set of skills. <laughs> I can run backwards from a fat very quickly. I can bake a beautiful baguette. <laughs> and I can smoke eight cigarettes at once. And fantastic at walking around with onions around my neck. I can carry many onions this way. And my love making is a second to none. <laughs> so that was 
Pico's very special set of skills. <laughs> um, All of which will come in useful later in the story. <laughs> or will they? Tune in later on to find out. Another of the plotters, called Lupian, married his fiance, married Pico's fiance. And Pico arranged for Lupian's daughter to fall in love with and marry a criminal. Pico then arranges for this criminal to be jailed. Lupian's daughter dies of sadness. And Pico follows this up by burning down Lupian's restaurant, leaving him impoverished. Oh. <laughs> Pico then frames Lupian's son for a theft, gets him jailed, and then stabs him to death. How did he stab him to death if he was in jail? I don't know. It was a hole in the story that I encountered as well, but I didn't decide to delve any further into it. <laughs> I just let it go. <laughs> All right. Good enough for me. Fair enough. The third plotter is then poisoned by Pico as well, so he kills all three of the plotters. Eventually, though, yeah. it doesn't end particularly well for Pico. He's actually killed by another of his old friends who knew about the plot all those years ago, but wasn't actually directly involved. It all sounds very romantic, chivalrous and honourable. <laughs> it does, doesn't it? <laughs> but in reality, I imagine it was a bit more chavvy. Yeah. <laughs> Ori Shazza, why are you going to marry that Pico? I love you more than him. I'll look, I'll look after you real good, I will. Oh, shut up, Lupian. You're such a creep. I love Pico. He's gorgeous. Oi, Lupian, you chatting on my bird, mate. Leave you it back, slag. Pico. He's not worth it. <laughs> Fuck off, Lupian. I'm going to hit you so fucking hard. Hold me back, Shazza. Anyway, <laughs> sorry, I've just done a whole episode of EastEnders. Bon, bon, bon. As the camera pans along the Seine. <laughs> yeah. Cigarette butts everywhere. Dog poo on every verge. <laughs> Allez, vous slag. <laughs> yeah. Pat le boucher. Paris, a beautiful city until you visit it and realise it is filthy. From a distance, it looks quite nice. Much like <laughs> the French people. <laughs> Up close, <laughs> mottled <laughs> complexion. <laughs> Too much makeup. Um, much like anyway. Paris. <laughs> We're having a good go at the French today, aren't we? Yeah, <laughs> what a treat. <laughs> anyway, there is another very interesting influence on Dumas when he was writing this book, and that is his father. So his father's life was also the inspiration for another of Dumas' books, The Three Musketeers. So, oh, Really? Yes. I mean, I knew he wrote The Three Musketeers, but I didn't realise it was a... Biography of his dad. No, apparently apparently, a lot of the scenes are inspired by his father. And his father is fascinating as well. And this is one of the things I found really interesting when I was researching this, which is why I chose to discuss it. Let me introduce you to Thomas Alexander Dumas, who is the father of Alexander Dumas. Born 1763, died 1806. He was a French general during the Revolutionary Wars. And he actually rose to the rank of general-in-chief of a French army, commanding 50,000 men in the Alps. And he was very successful, despite his mother being a slave and his father being an aristocrat. But he was given the perks of an aristocratic child when he was brought up, so he had a bit of a, a knee-up into the military. Hmm. In 1792, his army of the Alps, which was this 50,000-strong army, secured passes through the Alps into the Italian peninsula, allowing the French to fight the Austrian forces in Italy. And in 1798, he joined Napoleon on an expedition to take control of Egypt. And I don't think Napoleon was the emperor at this point. He was just a very, very successful, charismatic general. Hmm. Uh, the two clashed. So Dumas was tall, athletic, fearsome to the eye, and a, and a renowned fighter. Napoleon himself, quote, General Dumas has killed with his own hand many enemy cavalrymen. The general had, for many minutes, held a bridge all alone against the enemy cavalry, who were trying to cross the river. By doing so, he was able to delay the enemy advance until reinforcements arrived. So that's a famous story of Thomas Alexander Dumas. Oh, wow. So Napoleon was short, rotund, and had Napoleon syndrome, which was named <laughs> after Napoleon, who was a short, round, and had Napoleon syndrome, uh, which was named after <laughs> Napoleon, who was short, round, and... I was wondering where you were going with this. <laughs> Napoleon syndrome. <laughs> so, it's not syndrome, it's Napoleon complex, isn't it? Yes. You're going to get some hate for that from Francophiles who love to point out that Napoleon was, in fact, of completely average stature. Oh, was he really? That his guards, yes, his guards, he just picked incredibly tall and imposing guards. So when you see him with his bodyguards and his retinue, he always looks very small, but he was actually average height. Very interesting. That is an interesting fact. Still a bit of a prick, though. <laughs> <laughs> Can't take that away from him, Reddit historians. Can't take that away. 
1799, Dumas left Egypt by boat and he runs aground in Italy where he was captured and thrown into prison. He was in prison for two years. He was eventually released in 1801 when Napoleon's forces retook this area of Italy. But Napoleon made no effort in the two years previous to that to ransom him or to help free him. And he was kept in horrendous conditions and physically was in a terrible state at the end of the two years. In 1806, not shortly after release, Dumas actually died of stomach cancer with his family living in poverty. And Dumas seems to have been ignored by the French government and Napoleon, who did not give him the, the usual pension, as far as I could research, uh, or any other financial support. So his son, the famous writer who we've, dis- who we've been discussing, didn't even have a secondary school education due to his family's um, lack of money at this point. Despite his dad being an aristocrat. So why were the French, why were the French so anti-Dumas? Excellent question. Can you guess what was unique about Thomas Alexander Dumas? Uh, what was unique about him? I'll give you some clues. Well, was he black? He was indeed. Ah, I see. The clue was his mum was a slave. Absolutely, yep. There was another French general called Toussaint Louverture, who was also black at the same time, and it was only until 1975, when Chappie James became a four-star general in the American army, that these two French generals were sort of knocked off the top spot as the highest-ranking generals in a western army from sub-saharan africa so he was basically one of the most high-ranking men of african descent in any western western army interesting now i don't know if that stretches as far back as rome i don't know whether there were any were there any black emperors i think there'd be north african descent septimus severus was north african yeah but it's unknown whether he was greek or sub-saharan because there was a there was an awful lot of mingling in the Roman Empire. You know, the national boundaries as such didn't exist. So people came and went and slaves were bought up and bought and sold. And it, so it's entirely possible that there were sub-Saharan genetics floating around in, in the Roman Empire and possibly in Septimus Severus. We don't know. Yeah. Well, the thing about Thomas Alexander Dumas is he was 50% sub-Saharan African because his mother was a, an African slave. So very, very interesting. I thought that was fascinating when I read that. So something I never knew, which was the famous French author Alexander Dumas, was actually a quarter African. Fascinating. That is very interesting. That's the end of my story. So, yeah, as you can see, I I didn't expect that to be the subject I was going to discuss this week. But when I started researching, I found it very, very interesting. That is fascinating. Barely a cock joke. I don't think I made a single cock joke. No. Well, I, I, you know what? I'm not making a single one this week either. So I'm glad we got flatulence out of the way in the introduction. Yeah, well, it was... <laughs> It would have made the, it would have interrupted the podcast had we not. <laughs> <laughs> quite well, quite At irregular intervals. <laughs> oh, that's really interesting, Tom. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure. Well, for my revenge story today, Tom, I'm going back to Ukraine for the second time in this podcast. Uh, there yeah. is definitely something about Ukrainians and revenge. <laughs> The last time we went to Ukraine, it was in our episode on foul play when I talked about Olga of Kiev the 10th century saint and widowed ruler who went on a very Christian and really quite sadistic rampage she after was a the bitch. murder of her husband. She was a bit of a bitch. Yes, yeah. she did kill quite a lot of innocent people in revenge for the granted quite gruesome murder of her husband. Yeah. So today, instead of talking about a badass Ukrainian widow, I'm going to talk about a uh, badass Ukrainian widow. <laughs> the difference here, Tom is it's pretty much exactly a thousand years later. Ooh. Yes. This is Nazis, are we talking? We are talking fighting the Nazis. Excellent. Yes, and heroic da, 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 Mother da, Russia. Da, da, da. <laughs> yes, that, but more Russian sounding with Cossack dancing. Something like that. Beautiful. Imagine that in your head, audience, but better. Welcome, Tom, to the heroic and probably, possibly, mostly true story of Maria Oktobraskaya, the fighting girlfriend. How many times last week were you practising that? Name. I was literally practicing it as you were making groin straining jokes there. <laughs> <laughs> I was in the background going, 
Maria Oktobreiska. Maria Oktobreiska. <laughs> and in fact, I think I still said it wrong. Uh, now, Tom, you talked about episodes of EastEnders a minute ago. And if you've ever seen a fight in a pub car park where two guys are going at it and then one of the girlfriends or partners launches into it with incredible brutality. Yes. Nails flailing. This yeah. this is that in historical <laughs> form. <laughs> Flick knife in one hand, baseball bat with <laughs> nails in it in the other hand. Yeah. Come on, you fuckers. I love a good fight. <laughs> yeah. Let me have a go. <laughs> So Maria was born in Crimea, in Ukraine, and or Russia, delete as appropriate, depending on where in the world you're listening to, uh, to us, in, <laughs> <laughs> in August 1905, and was she was a pretty normal girl for most of her youth. She, uh, she had a job in a cannery, not to be confused with a job in a canary, Tom, where she worked in the left wing. Mind you, it was the Soviet Union, so everyone was in the left wing. <laughs> that was a forced joke. That was an excellent joke. Make I like no that. apologies like for it. That... <laughs> Get flying around in circles. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, she also had a job as a telephone operator. So far, so normal. But in 1925... <laughs> I loved your canary joke. That was a very <laughs> odd joke to think up. <laughs> it was. I don't know where it came from, really, to be honest. Excellent. I like that. <laughs> uh, so far, so normal. But in 1925, she married a Red Army officer and began to take a very keen interest in military matters. Was he an officer in the Red Army or was he an army officer who was red? Both. He was a very angry, shouty sergeant major. He had a kind of <laughs> abuse expression at all times. <laughs> you horrible lot. <laughs> you maggots. I hate you. I hate everyone I hate you. Stand up straight, boy. Listen to me when I'm talking to you. You listen to me, you taking a piss, boy. Do you think I am your fucking mother? Do you think I am here to make your life fun? No, boy. No, I'm here to make your life miserable. I'm here to make you a soldier. Very good. That was borderline John Cleese. <laughs> yeah, I, I was channeling that. Yeah. So, yes, in answer to your question, he was both red and a Red Army officer, which caused no end of hilarity and fun in the officer's mess. <laughs> Especially because they had a pet canary. Well, that's how they met. She was just there (laughs) waving one giant wing around. I have never seen so much beautiful lady with a wing on her hand. I will marry. I will make you wife. You will tickle me lovingly with canary feathers. (laughs) With your feathered hand. Sorry, that is my kink. Now I am slightly embarrassed, have gone red in face again. Thank you, everybody laughs. Sounds like what happened to female Soviet shot putters 20 years after they retired. They started growing hairy arms. (laughs) (laughs) Beards. You're not entirely wrong. (laughs) Enough of that. So, yes, she began to take a very keen interest in military affairs after marrying into into the Red Army. She joined the Military Wives Council and qualified as a nurse and a driver and a gunner, which was very unusual at the time. There were, for a start, there were very few cars in the USSR and even fewer women who knew how to drive and fix them. Here's a question for you, Tom. Nice bit of military trivia. I know the answer to it already, Sam. Yes, females are capable of driving cars (laughs) and fixing them. They're just not very good at it. Was that the answer to the question? (laughs) I'm guessing that was the question you were going to ask me. Damn, now I'm going to have to think of something else. (laughs) For anyone listening, Tom's uh, personal email address is... Yeah. I'd like to think our regular listeners realise we're not sexist, racist or prejudiced in any ways. No, it's fine when you say, I'm joking after it. <laughs> also, what you did was definitely just the equivalent of saying, I'm not racist and sexist, but... <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Tom Bernard Manning. <laughs> I'm bothering you all. <laughs> No, Tom. So the, the question I was going to ask probably has the same answer, actually. Can you name any other famous female truck drivers from World War II, Tom? No, I can't. Will, Tom. Will, Tom. Her Majesty the Queen, Tom. God bless her. God bless her. Her Majesty bless the Queen, Queen Elizabeth II herself. God bless her soul. God bless her. Now she was a truck driver in World War II. I've got to tear my eye that the Right Honourable Majesty would do such a kind and generous thing to the British people. I've got a tear in my eye and a patriotic semi-tom. I do okay. want no- <laughs> I'm raising my flag to a Majesty uh, Queen. A rule Britannia. Britannia rule the waves. Paul Nelson. <laughs> Nelson's column. <laughs> uh, 
and flags it half mast in memory of Princess Diana. <laughs> no, the Queen was a truck driver in World War Two, and is in fact the only head of state in the world who uh, actively served in World War Two. Living. Blow me down. Indeed. Good fact. That is a very good fact. So yeah, so in 1941, oh, married, married life, happily living normally, blah 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 blah. Time goes on. In 1941. The Germans launched the Eastern Offensive, Operation Barbarossa, and invaded the Soviet Union. What a mistake in America, huh? What a mistake in America! Nine. It was a very, very good idea. Expertly, expertly executed. You see what we did? We went, oh, hello, Stalin. We love you very much. Would you like to share Poland? Ha <laughs> ha, very nice. We have a pact. The moment he turns around... Aha! Let's invade Russia! The thing he least expects. That is pretty much exactly what happened. And the Germans invaded. I'm sure most of our listeners are vaguely aware that the Germans invaded Russia in World War II. Maria's husband was sent off to fight, and Maria herself was evacuated to Tomsk in Siberia, which does sound a bit rough being taken from the beautiful resorts of the temperate Black Sea coast to Siberia, but hey, Mm. probably better than the alternative. And it was certainly better than the fate of her husband, who died in battle near Kiev in August 1941, just a few weeks into the war. Although, to be honest, despite being a qualified military officer, he did survive Stalin's great purges in the 1930s, so actually, he did pretty well to make it to the war at all. (laughs) But anyway, didn't last very long. He didn't have a bad run overall, though. In the chaos of the early days of the Eastern Front, information travelled very slowly, if news got out at all, and so it took two full years for news of his death to reach Tomsk and Maria, uh, who was presumably already pretty livid that he hadn't sent her any letters in two years. <laughs> so she was already angry and was made apoplectic with rage at the news that he was actually dead. And so she immediately began to plot her revenge against the Nazis. Cue sporting montage, Tom. If you want to do some kind of... Uh... <clears throat> yeah. So first... She's... <laughs> so whilst Tom's doing that in the background... Picture... <laughs> You're a champ, Rocky. You're a champ. <laughs> I want to be somebody. God, it's like I'm in the cinema. It's not about how hard you hit... It's about how many times you can be hit and still keep moving forward. It's like being in a cinema with someone who's had a stroke. <laughs> yes, that is Sylvester Stallone. Uh- <laughs> yes. Yes, it is. So, so, yes, sporting montage. First, Maria sold everything she owned, like literally the clothes off her back. All of her worldly possessions were flogged and she donated all of the cash that she managed to raise, about 50,000 rubles, to the government. And then, Tom, she wrote a letter. Second sporting montage of letter writing over candlelight. Oh, fuck Go. No, this is Rocky, Rocky 3. No, I, I was going to do I Top Gun. I have a tiger, it's a deal of the fight. Building up to the generations Little known fact, that song is only in Rocky 3, isn't it, Sam? It's not in Rocky 1 or Rocky 2, for those Rocky amateurs out there. You say that I am a Rocky amateur. Oh, you're not. I have never seen Rocky, any of them. Any of them. Shame. Shame on you. I, I'm I know. envisaging you walking through King's Landing naked with everyone going, shame, <laughs> shame, shame. Adrian. You love the Rocky films. Adrian. Adrian. <laughs> They're brilliant. Rocky 3 has like a homoerotic training montage on the beach where Rocky and oh, Apollo sh- Creed cuddle in tiny little swim shorts. Well, shit, why didn't you tell me? <laughs> anyway, we can see great sporting films next week. Over candlelight, she wrote a letter to Stalin, explaining what had happened and stating that the 50,000 rubles was to pay for a tank. Not a holiday for Stalin. No. Stalin, I'm giving you that money for a tank. I want to, I want to see the receipts. Don't go blowing it on vodka and whores. <laughs> yes, you can get the sporting pack. <laughs> the leather seats. The 50,000 rubles was to pay for a tank, Tom. A tank that she would drive. A tank that she would drive straight at the first Nazi she saw. Now, this was way too good a propaganda opportunity for the Soviets to throw away. Here you've got a widow selling her worldly possessions to aid the motherland and get revenge. This is straight out of the Chekhov playbook. And so Stalin said, yes, Maria, you can have your tank. 
or rather that's how the story goes. What actually probably happened is a nameless bureaucrat just stamped da on the application form. <laughs> but it's much more it's much more romantic if Stalin dropped his vodka glass and said, "God damn it, you can have it." My god, we must give this woman a tank. <laughs> <laughs> god damn you, I'm going to get you that tank whether it kills me. I like you. You have spunk. One thing Russia needs right now is spunk. You get tank. It is a, it is a beautiful Russian drink. Uh, <laughs> yes. 95% alcohol. Spunk. <laughs> Spunk. Very nice with caviar. So a version of this letter has survived. I absolutely no idea how true to life it is, but I've got it anyway. And the letter says... Well, the actual... The, the one. The, well, the text of a letter has survived. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. Oh, I was about to say, that would be dramatic. It would. <laughs> I'm surprised we didn't flip it at the start. This <laughs> yeah, I've got it right here in front of me. historical artefact. <laughs> Which side do you want the Fabergé egg to land on, Sam? <laughs> do you want the smashed exterior? <laughs> or the bejeweled model of the Winter Palace on the inside? <laughs> that's covered in crumbs and peanut butter. <laughs> so the letter says, My husband was killed in action defending the motherland. Oh, sorry, I, I need to put the uh, female Russian accent on. Mr. Stalin, I like you. I like what you're doing with the country. Anyway, enough small talk. My husband was killed in action defending Motherland. I want revenge on the fascist dogs for his death and for death of Soviet people tortured by fascist barbarians. Not by NKVD though. They are okay. You kill who you like. For this purpose, I've deposited all my personal savings, 50,000 rubles, to National Bank in order to build tank. I kindly ask to name the tank Fighting Girlfriend and to send me to the front line as driver for said tank. And uh, of course, that Stalin was brilliant. Said, Thanks. I imagine after that speech, you then get Roger Moore in a headlock and suffocate him with your legs. If only. But he manages to get out. <laughs> it's a recurring dream I have. <laughs> of, of sexually Roger... assaulting Roger Moore. <laughs> Death by snoo snoo, yeah. <laughs> as he rises, raises an eyebrow. Roger Moore's a great actor, isn't he? His eyebrows are great actors. Oh, the rest of him not so much. Roger Moore. <laughs> he just basically talks like Roger Moore and occasionally raises an eyebrow. <laughs> Anywho. Uh, <laughs> interestingly, a little aside, Maria wasn't the only person to buy herself a tank in World War II. There was a brilliant husband and wife couple called Alexandra Boyko and her husband Ivan. They also raised and donated 50,000 rubles. I was disappointed, I was disappointed it wasn't Jeffrey Boyko. I must Jeffrey Boyko, yeah. <laughs> Still going, Tom. Great innings. They had a great innings. <laughs> How many people are going to get that joke? <laughs> Only very few elderly Brits. <laughs> <laughs> elderly cricket fans. Yes. So, yes, Alexandra Boyko and her husband, Jeffrey. <laughs> hey, slash on. Ivan. <laughs> Raised and donated 50,000 rubles and uh, and ended up driving and fighting in their own tank as a husband and wife team on the Eastern Front. In matching outfits. With her and... A little bit like a sort of couple <laughs> yeah. that go on tandem bike yeah. holidays. Yep, exactly. Like a caravanning hiking couple with matching cardigans. <laughs> <laughs> that is exactly, exactly what I had in my head. <laughs> with a very violent disposition. Finishing each other's sentences, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, matching, matching thermos flasks. <laughs> yep. So she was the tank commander and he was the engineer. And kind of sweetly, in a dark way, they were both injured on the same day and recovered together in hospital next to each other. And they both survived the war, but they had their own tank. Brilliant. (laughs) I can only imagine, firstly, the arguments in the heat of battle. And secondly, secondly, the doilies used to cover the (laughs) the tank. (laughs) Yeah, the teapot with a little tea-knitted warmer on it. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, a hand knitted tea cozy. <laughs> yeah, the phone rings, the field radio rings, and she picks it up. She says, Lady of the Tank speaking. <laughs> what I also think must have been awful is, and particularly awkward, is being the other three crew members in that tank. <laughs> <laughs> as they're having, as having marital disputes. Passive aggressive <laughs> arguments. <laughs> Alexandra, my dear, what is wrong? I'm fine. Shut up and drive, Ivan. <laughs> oh no, is it because I mixed the white overalls with the dark overalls? Oh, here it is. Here it is. <laughs> Sergei's just in the background trying not to make eye contact with either of them. <laughs> Whistling to himself. 
Anyway, back to Maria. She gets her tank, but she didn't actually know how to use it. Now, ordinarily, for the Soviets, not being a particularly well-trained soldier was not a huge issue in World War II. <laughs> Just so long as there were lots of them. That's <laughs> yeah, the important abso- thing. Absolutely. This was at the point in World War II where Russian tanks weren't even being painted. They were being rolled out of the factory production lines, fueled up, crewed by people who had, at best, a couple of days training and just sent straight into battle. That's a a slight exaggeration, but, but yeah, they were being sent out unpainted. Like, times were really desperate. Maria was a special case, though. She was going to be a big propaganda victory for the USSR, so they wanted to make sure she lasted more than five minutes when it came to a scrap. So she was sent off for five months of intensive tank driver training. And in September 1943... She qualified and was shipped off as a driver and mechanic alongside fighting girlfriend, her T-34 tank, to the 26th Guards Tank Brigade, who thought all this was fucking hilarious. Now, in World War II, over 800,000 women served with the Red Army, but very few of those were actually at the spearhead of any offensive. There were a lot who were trucks, a lot who were... uh, A lot who were trucks? Truck drivers. (laughs) Soviet lady very strong. (laughs) A lot who were right fatties. (laughs) <laughs> very big behind <laughs> thick bones <Built> like a <laughs> truck <laughs> literally so most of them were truck drivers or anti-aircraft gunners still very dangerous but not quite fixed bayonets and charging over the top dangerous interestingly Sam just quickly on that topic I think I encountered in my research there's archaeological remains of females fighting for the Russians and the French during the Napoleonic Wars yes yeah the Russians were I was going to say they were quite egalitarian. They were quite desperate. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, didn't have much choice. Anyway, sorry, I interrupted. You carry on. No, no. So Maria's colleagues in the the tank brigade thought this was hilarious. She was quite the novelty, this now 38-year-old officer's wife in her angrily named tank, her passive-aggressively named tank with a letter from Stalin, was considered a bit of a novelty. But she very quickly proved them wrong. In fighting around Smolensk in October 1943, she knocked out several German anti-tank guns and several machine gun nests at the same time. Uh, When the tank was hit by a shell, she leapt out to fix it in the heat of battle and earned herself a promotion to sergeant in the process. And as far as we know, this much actually happened. This isn't just propaganda. A couple of weeks later, again, her tank was involved in heavy fighting, where it knocked out again several pieces of German artillery before again being hit and losing a track. Uh, which she jumped out and again repaired. So she must have been getting pretty annoyed with the driver at this point, who was her, actually, for keeping on crashing the thing. (laughs) My shells. Kept driving it into shopping trolleys. (laughs) But she was gaining a pretty fearsome reputation as a driver and mechanic by this point. The curb moved. (laughs) No, it didn't. The curb was always there. Oh, yeah, it was definitely a a tank shell exploded next to it. Did a tank shell have red paint? (laughs) Why is that truck over there? That red truck got a large scrape down the side. (laughs) Unfortunately, it wasn't to last. On January 14th, 1944, just three months after reaching the front line, fighting girlfriend was again hit whilst involved in fierce fighting. Maria got out to repair it once again, and another shell exploded right next to her, hitting her in the head. She survived in... I know. She survived a shell hit to the head. Yeah, so the shell exploded next to her and she took several shrapnel wounds to the head. Uh, oh, she God, was right. Yeah, so she was in a coma for a couple of months and then unfortunately died. She never regained consciousness and died on March 15th, 1944. Yeah, it's good use of the word unfortunate. <laughs> <laughs> unfortunate. Unfortunately, she died. Appro- appropriate. I thought it was going to say unfortunately she lost part of her head but no no she she died you know she did <laughs> die <laughs> but she was posthumously awarded the hero of the soviet union which is the ussr's highest military honor she was one of only two female tank drivers to receive the award and she did become the propaganda star the soviets had hoped they put her on postcards they wrote newspaper articles about her she was a real celebrity following her death incidentally the pictures of her they put on postcards was when she was alive <sighs> <laughs> not after she, not after Shelley blown her head apart. Okay, they didn't prop her up against the tank. Oh, remember Curly? Most importantly, however, and the greatest award that I think any woman can receive, she was quite recently declared an overlooked Disney princess in a recent uh, poll in an American wow. newspaper. Yeah. Now, I don't know what you would call a Disney film set in the Russian winter, Tom, given that Frozen is already taken. 
and Bambi. <laughs> what? Bambol- Bambolski. Uh, Bambolski. Is that set in the winter? Oh, I think the start of it is maybe. Oh, I don't know. Well, Tom, you interrupted because there's a frozen joke coming. Sorry. Uh, because... <laughs> Because I imagine, Tom, the song would go Let something... Let it go, Sam. Would go Let something it go. Like, yeah, yeah. I imagine, Tom, the song would go something like this. Do you want to kill a Nazi? Come on, let's go and fight. My husband's been dead several years. I have to fix this tank again. I might get blown away. Very good. Is that That's the, the famous Frozen song, is it? Is it Let it go? Or is it- no, no, that's... It's, it's one of the other songs. Do you want to build a snowman? I couldn't write any lyrics for Let It Go. So there we go. That's Maria's story. Interestingly, and there's a slight honourable mention just before we finish, she wasn't the only Soviet revenge fighter. There was a sniper called Rosa Shanina, who was another absolute badass. She was a nursery or kindergarten teacher. Wow. <laughs> which is a great start, who became one of the Soviet Union's best snipers after signing up when her brother was killed in the siege of Leningrad. The Russians particularly liked women as snipers because they could squeeze into tight spaces. Yeah, yeah. And were viewed slightly sexistly, but probably not entirely wrongly, as being more patient and cunning than men. So they had about two and a half thousand frontline female snipers in World War II, the Russians. And she was one of the best. She eventually got 59 confirmed kills before being killed in Germany in January 1945, aged just 20 years old. So there you go. Wow. The mass murdering nursery school teacher. <laughs> what a girl. Kindergarten killer. What a broad. It's a bit like Kindergarten She's Cop a beauty. with uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger, but with <laughs> yeah. elements of that film Enemy at the Gates with Jude Law. Fusion film. Yeah, absolutely. Very good. Enemy at the kindergarten? <laughs> Cop at the gates? Uh, I'll, I'll come back to you on that one. Anyway, Tom, that is my honourable mention. Rosa Shinina, badass Soviet sniper, and the revenge of fighting girlfriend. So so was she considered to be a princess by Disney? Had, had Disney shortlisted her? No, no, no. This was just an article in a newspaper. It had oh, nothing to do enough. of people who should be Disney princesses for being badass. Got you, got you, got you, got you. Okay, fair enough. Very interesting story. Very ah. Russian this week. Very Russian, yes. Good chance to get some accents in. Well, you can. You can do a Russian accent. <laughs> but you did some French. Yeah. But yeah, my French accent's 50% there. It's passable. <laughs> I could do a bad French, a bad German, a bad Aussie. I struggle with Italian, <laughs> Spanish. Your English is dubious. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, I did enjoy that. That was a good Me topic too. to choose and definitely one we can come back to. Yeah, I think so. I don't know what you think about this because we talked last week and said for next week we might start going back and doing journeys again, ones where we've had loads of options and have really kind of struggled to pick one to talk about. Yeah. So we could do journeys next week, but I was kind of thinking like badasses is actually a pretty good topic. There are a lot of badasses, male and female, and indeed donkey throughout history yeah, yeah let's go the badass is a good idea that is a good idea I'm happy to go yeah. badass should we do historical badasses we'll do historical badasses sweet yeah badass is good and badass is bad oh I see so bad badasses badasses across the spectrum you could do bad badasses good badasses average badasses Excellent. average asses rear of the year pert bums <laughs> what getting distracted carry on fancybottoms.com come on <laughs> well Thank you all so much for joining us for another episode of That Was Genius. We've had an absolute ball this week. I hope you have as well. If you have, do let us know. Leave us a comment on your social media platform of choice. We're on Twitter at that underscore was underscore genius. Got there eventually. We're on Facebook at That Was Genius Podcast and on Instagram at That Was Genius. Even better than letting us know how much you like us, let your friends know how much you like us. Tell them about it. I was thinking this week as well, Sam, if anyone has, if any of our listeners have any ideas for a good topic. Yes. Give us a shout. Absolutely. Yeah. Let us know and we'll read some of them out. Comment on social media or send us an email. That was geniuscast at gmail.com. Get in touch. Right. Thank you so much for joining us. And we will see you next week. Say goodbye, Tom. Bye bye.